HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Nourish and Flourish, a handcrafted, independent publication taking readers on a journey from the soil to the stars. Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site. So if you're in New York City, you're probably on a bike and you're probably working with more than one app. Your shift starts whenever you want to because you are a contract worker, so you kind of just log in and wait for an order to ding. Then you accept the first order, pick up the food, take it to the people. Food is getting more convenient every day. And not just in cities where pad thai, pizza, and sushi are available at all hours thanks to apps like Uber Eats and Grubhub. You can now order pantry staples on Amazon and regionally specific beans and grains from specialty companies like Rancho Gordo. But while convenience is on the rise, the value of human interaction within our food supply chain is diminishing. A couple months ago, there was an uproar over paid tips through delivery apps. Customers were surprised to learn they may not all go to couriers, a case study in the ethical cost of convenient food. In this episode, you'll learn more about how the way we shop eat, and pay for food is changing, for good and for bad. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. This week, we have a new group of reporters who are examining the cost of convenience from several angles. First up is Jessica Krancic, who set out to learn if autonomous trucks are going to disrupt how food travels across the U.S. When grocery shopping, some of us might not consider how our food got from the farm to our corner market. Those fresh, crisp cherry tomatoes or baby carrots you love are on a tight schedule from harvest to transport getting packed in insulated containers and refrigerated trucks to speed across the country and into your shopping cart. It seems pretty simple, but in this rapidly digitizing world, big changes have come to the shipping industry. Take, for example, the emergence of autonomous trucks, causing drivers to worry that robots are going to put them out of work. I talked with Craig Litson, the COO of TruckerPath, the fastest-growing mobile platform for the trucking industry in North America, to find out just how real those fears may be. Food transportation is a unique segment and one that offers uh, a lot of complexity. There's a a thorough vetting process, 
And on top of it all, technology is really helping in that most of the loads today have tracking technology on them. So they know exactly where they are. They have refrigeration technology on them. And what I mean by that is the technology that to track the temperature within the van at all times. So that's 100% uploaded and available. So if it gets out of bounds, everybody knows about it and can take action if there's a problem with with a refrigeration unit or it's run out of fuel or some other issue has occurred that results in the refrigerated range of temperature being offended one way or the other, mostly going up as opposed to going down now. Not only does this ensure the food's freshness, but gives the driver more time to reach their destination instead of going on an expensive overnight rush. And when drivers are in a rush, that's when accidents can happen. To combat this, many trucks are already outfitted with a certain amount of automated driving on a level from 1 to 5, 1 being cruise control and 5 being a completely self-driving vehicle. I look at the, the, the benefits of technology in the truck as being driving safer and having much safer situations uh, for trucks on the road. And, you know, basically, there are unfortunately many thousands of people that die in in, uh, accidents with trucks that that if we make it more safe, we'll be saved. And I think that's great. So there's a real benefit to society there. We all want a safer world, and AI can certainly help. But seeing fleets of driverless trucks is probably farther away than we think. I could be wrong, uh, but I... I think there's going to be significant regulatory pushback on driverless trucks, especially in in dense areas, cities, as an example. I cannot see how driverless trucks will be regulated or permitted to operate. I can see initially platooning with two or three trucks, with one, uh, one being the lead truck and two being the slave trucks, with drivers, then gradually lightening up on the drivers, but still having one driver for three trucks being operated. I can see that type of technology working intercity, not in the city. But Craig explained that even this idea of having one driver pilot three trucks is still a ways off, and drivers worried about job security shouldn't be panicking so soon. I hear this from drivers all the time, that they're, you know, they're, they have these fears of the autonomous trucking environment uh, frankly, the gradual nature of the buildup of opportunities versus, you know, the, the, the shortage of drivers, I think they're going to balance each other out. It's quite a better, it's quite a bit better a driving experience, even at level four in these, uh, in the, in these trucks, which, which have virtually everything in them. And they're much more, uh, you know, much better to, to, to drive much much easier to drive. They have alert systems. They, you know, a lot of really complicated stuff. So that help the driver. They make the driver experience a whole lot better. So while AI isn't taking over the freight industry just yet, it's already helping our food get to us faster, fresher, and safer. Have you ever spotted a restaurant on a delivery app that you're pretty sure doesn't exist in real life? You're not imagining things. For our next story, H. Conley takes us inside the world of ghost kitchens. 
With the rise of delivery, a new restaurant model has emerged, ghost kitchens. Unlike restaurants that have dining areas and wait staff, these are kitchens where food is only prepared for takeout and delivery. To get a clear idea of how these facilities operate and what they mean for the industry, I spoke to an expert. My name is Atul Sood. I'm the Chief Business Officer of Kitchen United. Kitchen United is a company that builds kitchen facilities where restaurants can rent space. They started in Pasadena and currently have locations in seven cities across America. Atul talked me through some of the economic and logistical advantages of ghost kitchens. A restaurant can cost as much as one to three million dollars to set up in terms of capital expenditure. In the ghost kitchen model, um, that cost goes to virtually zero because we equip the kitchen facility with all the equipment a restaurant might need. It also reduces the time it takes to launch a new restaurant. Kitchen United reduces labor costs for restaurants as well. Other than the cooking of the actual food, which a restaurant can execute with one to two cooks on the line, we do all of the associated labor needs of a back-of-house facility. Ghost kitchens can be a tool for existing restaurants to expand their reach to different neighborhoods and prepare more than their existing kitchen can manage. They can also be used by entrepreneurs trying something new. A concern that pops up a lot when talking about this model is food safety. Kitchen United has lobbies at all their locations where customers can order from tablets and get their food for takeout, but not all ghost kitchens do. If you're ordering from an app, you may never know that your food is coming from a ghost kitchen. If you can't tell where your food is coming from, how can you tell if the kitchen it was prepared in has been properly inspected? The, this model evolved primarily internationally, and as it was getting off the ground, there were examples of uh, ghost kitchen operators that uh, were operating in uh, less sanitary uh, conditions. There were problems with waste disposal. But uh, really in the U.S., there are such strict permitting guidelines on restaurant operations that in order to serve food, you really do need to pass health inspections. Kitchen United facilities have an overall inspection, and each kitchen line has to pass individual inspection. If you look at the food delivery industry about five years ago, food delivery was a $30 billion industry. Today, it's about $43 billion. Five years ago, 15 billion of that came from pizza. Today, 15 billion still comes from pizza. So all the growth in the industry has happened outside of the pizza category. What we're finding is that a lot of these non-pizza restaurants are looking for ways to expand their footprint to better serve this burgeoning customer demand. And this model really allows them to do that uh, both cost-effectively and quickly. Ghost kitchens are ushering in a new era of convenience and choice. But with the number of delivery options growing, the perpetual question only gets harder to answer. What do you want to order? We'll be right back with more Meat in 3 after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Nourish and Flourish, a handcrafted, independent publication taking readers on a journey from the soil to the stars. Nourish and Flourish showcases thought-provoking stories from around the world and stunning photography. Each issue explores emerging trends in food, nutrition, recipes, soil health, technology, regenerative agriculture, travel, and more. 
Volume 1 of Nourish and Flourish includes features on the Svalbard Global Seed Bank, the International Symposium on Bread, and Ancient Hawaiian Aquaculture. Are you interested in eating healthier and learning more about where your food comes from and living a more connected life? Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site. For $29.99, you'll receive three issues. That's 38% off the retail price. Nourish and Flourish, connecting readers with the people and stories that make a difference in living a more balanced, healthier life. Subscribe today or find a retailer near you at nourishandflourish.site. Welcome back to Meet in Three. Next up, we turn to Ruby Walsh, who has the story on the tipping scandal that forced apps to be more transparent about how they pay delivery drivers. I'm standing on the corner of Atlantic Avenue and Court Street. It's 7 p.m. on a Wednesday. Bikers whiz by me. A lot of bikers. Many cyclists carry insulated packs. Some have heavy bags dangling from their handlebars. This is the dinner rush. New Yorkers all over the city have arrived home from work. Too tired to pick up the pan and start cooking, they pick up their phones, and in just a few swipes, they've ordered their dinner. Minutes later, their dish is at the door. Among the sea of food app cyclists, I spot the signature bright red packs of the couriers from DoorDash. Although these dashers are still delivering, the company they serve remains embroiled in a tipping scandal that the New York Times brought to the public's attention in July of 2019. I spoke with Claire Brown, senior staff writer with The New Food Economy, to find out more about DoorDash's controversial policy. This tipping policy first came out in, I think it was like February. And what it was, was that DoorDash guaranteed every driver a minimum payment per delivery. So if I'm a driver and I'm accepting a delivery, maybe I have to go over Big Bridge but I know I'm going to make seven bucks on this delivery. And I do a couple an hour, three an hour, two an hour. I'm making out okay. But what DoorDash did to supplement its base pay was it took some of the customer's tip and applied it to that minimum. And when this came out, it really enraged customers because I think people thought that their money was going directly into the pocket of the driver. So back in July, DoorDash CEO Tony Wu responded to the backlash by publicly promising to overhaul the company's tipping policy. But from what we can tell so far, there's not a whole lot of evidence that the change in payment structure has increased the lot of drivers overall. I would be interested to hear a counterargument to that, but I haven't seen a whole lot of reporting on the change. DoorDash's penchant for pocketing tips may be shocking news to customers, but it's hardly the greatest challenge that dashers face. You know, it's it's not an easy job. You think of biking as something you do in nice weather, but a lot of the time you're outside, it's raining, it's cold. Food app couriers often struggle to make a living delivering for a single platform. You know, some research came out that two-thirds of couriers are using more than one app at a time. Juggling food app deliveries is made all the more confusing by the platform's differing policies. If you are working for Uber, for instance, you won't know the drop-off location until you pick up the food. And that isn't even the weirdest part. It gets more complicated when you're working with multiple apps and they use these kind of video game style incentives to try to get you to move faster and to stay on a particular app. So Uber will say, 
deliver four things in the next hour for 10 extra dollars. You heard that right. The apps make the drivers shift like a game, dangling bonuses to squeeze more productivity out of their workers. Except, instead of playing for Candy Crush coins, the couriers are playing for cash. Postmates has blitz pricing, Uber has Uber Rush, and most apps offer bonus points. These incentives can make or break a shift. Miss one, and you might not make minimum wage for that hour. You have this frictionless experience of ordering your food and getting it delivered, and you don't really think about all that goes into it, especially because they they work so hard to brand themselves as a tech company, and the, the couriers aren't even technically employees. You know, there's a lot of other things that come from being a gig economy worker. Your work is not going to provide health insurance. You have a higher tax burden. If you need to repair your bike, it's on you, not on the company. You don't technically have the right to organize. And so a lot of those problems that kind of overlap with the problems you hear about with Uber and Lyft drivers also apply to delivery drivers. And yet they're still operating in this much more high-risk environment. What you often read about these delivery platforms is that they're raising millions and millions and millions of dollars in funding. And you think of tech jobs as being cushy and you think of gig jobs as being flexible and decent paying. And um, that reputation, I think, has started to fade, but it's, um, it's still prevalent enough that people are surprised by these kinds of stories. So you might be asking yourself at this point, what's the solution here? Food apps are created at a rate so fast that the law often struggles to catch up. But according to Claire, legislators are now starting to take action. So actually yesterday, um, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill into law. It's called Assembly Bill 5, and it seeks to reclassify gig economy workers as employees. And so in California, it's seen as a huge win for the workers who have been essentially at the mercy of the apps. Uh, You know, your income can change if demand is too high. You have no control over where you go in a given day. And so the legal argument that um, if your employer has so much control over your life, then they are, in fact, your employer um, was decided in the state Supreme Court and then codified into law. And so that argument, I think, is gaining steam it really remains to be seen what these companies are going to do because it could potentially be very disruptive, but it could also be very good for the people who work for them. To hear more about the challenges facing food delivery workers as winter approaches, listen to episode 27 of Meet and 3, The Dead of Winter. For our final story, Nicole Cornwell shines a light on dark stores, fulfillment centers that are changing the way urbanites shop for groceries. It's 2.30 in the middle of a Wednesday afternoon workday slump, and it's almost the end of the day. And you remember you still need a birthday cake and bottle of wine for your friend's potluck tonight. If you live in New York, you can have all these items delivered with a few taps and clicks in as little as an hour. Food delivery giant Fresh Direct's same-day delivery spin-off Food Kick uses fulfillment centers in Manhattan and Brooklyn to get food to customers fast. Taking a cue from Amazon Prime's same-day and one-day delivery promises, Fresh Direct offers customers an easy way to shop for food online without having to step foot in a crowded grocery store. Deliveries are filled by a staff of professional shoppers, or pickers, 
at what are known as dark stores. But what happens to our relationship with food when we depend on these major retailers for same-day deliveries and skip the chore of gathering food ourselves? Larissa Zimmeroff is a journalist focusing on the intersection of food and technology for the likes of the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and NPR. In 2018, she wrote an article for University of Texas magazine, Food and City, entitled, The Evolution of How We Shop for Food. Her reporting led her on a deep dive into the phenomenon of the dark store, and she assured me that their very existence relies on the increasing desire for same-day delivery. In the true sense of the word, a dark store is a store that is fully stocked, but isn't open to the public. And it's being used as a hub to get products to customers who are ordering online the same day. I, I think it's hard to find someone who hasn't ordered food for like same day delivery. I talk to people every day and they say, oh yeah, I, all, my, all my groceries come from Amazon Direct or um, you know, any of the online retailers. The, the concept of going to a farmer's market or going to the market to pick out produce is becoming fewer and far between the people that actually want to spend the time to do that. And same-day delivery is growing. Larissa told me that 65% of retailers are offering same-day delivery in 2019. And she believes that number will continue to rise in the future. While delivery workers and dark stores are more representative of metropolitan areas like New York, same-day delivery is growing along with the rest of the online grocery industry, feeding off of consumers' desire to keep things convenient. But convenience comes with certain trade-offs. While people on the one hand are hyper-interested in food and what the food does for their bodies, they are less interested in um, what it might be made of or come from or be sourced from. And then I think dark stores add to that as they grow, same-day fulfillment centers pop up. It just um, increases that uh, this rapid desire for, I want this specific kind of oat milk today, but there may be no concept behind um, where are those oats grown, where's the milk made, um, and how am I getting it? But there is some hope for online grocery shopping. Online retailers are beginning to include local options to their stores. Foodkick even offers CSA boxes of seasonal produce from Hepworth and Lancaster Farms, both local to New York. Despite the influence of dark stores on our shopping behavior, there is hope that the trend of convenience might yield some options for conscious consumers. And on that note, we end this episode with a look ahead to next week where we're hard at work to bring you some good news. Four stories about things that are going right in the food world. Special thanks this week to H. Conley, Jessica Krancic, Nicole Cornwell, Ruby Walsh, and Kevin Chang Barnum. Meet and 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. Please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or just want to say hey, you can write to us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.
Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast.